0: Reflections on Shakespeare's King Lear by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 5 You see, now we have the perfect match-up here. We have the two daughters viciously fighting each other uh, in the uh, in a subterranean way, poisons and stuff like that. And we have the two, two sons of Gloucester now fighting with swords. So it's a perfect parallel structure, except one of the sons is virtuous. And that's not so with the two sisters. Edgar prevails. Edmund is wounded. And he knows that he's mortally wounded. But Edmund, knowing he is mortally wounded, begins very slowly to have what amounts, in his case, to a change of heart, although compared to other changes of heart in this play, it's, it's not a very major one. He says, What you have charged me with, that I have done, and more, much more, the time will bring it out. Tis past, and so am I. But what art thou that hast this fortune on me? If thou art noble, I do forgive thee, he says to Edgar. And Edgar says, let's exchange charity. And Shakespeare really tries to do this when he can in good conscience bring the conflict to some kind of charitable conclusion. Edgar says, I am your brother, Edgar. And then he says, the gods are just and of our pleasant vices make instruments to plague us. And of his father, Gloucester, he says, the dark and vicious place... Where thee he got, cost him his eye. Now, this is it, and Edmund agrees. He says, Thou hast spoken right, tis true, the wheel is come full circle. So, this is Edgar and Edmund agreeing that the world is, in fact, finally orderly, that the gods have arranged it so that the, the wicked. Receive their uh, punishment and the just receive their reward. I don't think we're to take this as Shakespeare's opinion because I don't think he very often puts his opinion in people in the middle ground. let that, say, like, if you want to find out Shakespeare's opinion, uh, it will either come out of the mouth of the fool or out of the mouth of Cordelia, uh, but not very often out of the mouth of Edgar and Edmund and Kent and the rest of them. They're good people or bad people and somewhere in the middle but struggling as as we do uh, with with what the universe how it's how it works and how it holds together, and wanting to see some order to it, some pattern before we get too far away from Edgar saying the gods are just, I want to go back to something that Lear speaks to Cordelia earlier in the act before they are taken away to prison, as Edmund orders them to be taken to prison. Lear says to Cordelia, Upon such sacrifices, my Cordelia, the gods themselves throw incense. Have I caught thee? And I wonder when Shakespeare says things like, Have I caught thee? one must always pay close attention, I think, because I think it's his way of uh, indicating that there's more there than meets the eye. Then suddenly you see the gods there there are these uh, creatures that are somehow participating in the sacrificial act in some way where which which we would regard as demonic. We would say, hey, what are the gods doing here throwing incense on the fire? When you first read that, I've always read this in a very positive way. You know, this is a very noble sacrifice. But if you stop to think, then, then when I saw this, see, it took me 15 readings to see it. Have I caught thee? I thought, now wait a minute, what is he talking about? Have I caught thee? The gods, and I think in, in this play there's a clear there's a clear play on the distinction between the, the pagan and the Christian dispensation. And the pagan gods are right there. We think they're up there uh, waiting for the smoke of the sacrifice to enter their nostrils. They're not, he says. They're right here throwing incense on. It changes the perspective on the on the pagan gods altogether, and it and it conforms to uh, to the to uh, the Girardian understanding of the role of myth in the sacrificial exercise. Turns out those gods aren't as aren't as innocent and lovely as we thought. They're sitting there throwing incense on the sacrifice. What does the incense do? It fills the room with smoke. See fills the nostrils with a sweet smell and fills the room with smoke. And that's that's what the mythological construct does. The gentleman enters at that point with a bloody knife, still smoking, straight from the heart of Goneril. And he says, they're dead. The goneril has poisoned Regan and killed herself. And Edmund says, I was contracted to them both, all three now marry in an instant. And you have the great triangular structure of this play ending in death. And then this pathetic thing. Edmund says, Yet Edmund was beloved. The one, the other poisoned for my sake. And after slew herself. Now there is a kind of desperation, pathos in that. You see, we know from the very beginning of the play that Gloucester loved Edmund. But he couldn't feel it. And we also know that Goneril didn't. But he felt it. Now, that's, that's just pure pathos. How could that be? That somebody loves him he couldn't feel it? And somebody didn't and he felt it as love? And it is that one of them was in this mimetic entanglement and the other one was not? And somehow he reads this as love. He says, she, po- she actually killed somebody for my sake. I must be lovable. I must be lovable if somebody's willing to do that. But Albany corrects the situation. He 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 responds, "Even so, cover their faces." That's all it that needs to be said. But all Albany all Edmund had to feel was this little glimmer of distorted, perverted love to make the what for him is the final Turn. He says, I pant for life, some good I mean to do despite my own nature. Quick, send, be, be brief in it, it's to the castle, and he tries to bring the captain back before he kills Lear. In other words, he just felt that little hint of love, and he, he wants to try to do something worth, worthy before he dies. And when Albany finds out that, the, that Lear and Cordelia are, are under the order of execution, he says of Cordelia, the gods defender," And we're back to the theological question. The gods defend This is a prayer. He didn't say the gods defend them. Would have been more general, would have been, been more appropriate to the way the narrative is unfolding. He said the gods defend her because it draws a specific bead on Cordelia. Will the gods defend her? All through this play, there's been this question about what, how, how do the gods relate to all this? And the last we heard was from Edmund and Edgar, who agreed that the gods ran a an orderly and just cosmos. And so now we get this prayer from Albany, the gods' defender, and we want to find out if they will. And of course they won't. Not in this play, they won't. And I was thinking about that on Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning was the morning when uh, Robert Alton Harris was scheduled to be executed. Thank goodness from my perspective, I'd say. Thank goodness he was not. Uh, but anyway, I was very aware of that on Tuesday morning. And on Tuesday morning, in the Roman Catholic lectionary, the responsorial psalm was Psalm 102. And I'll read the part of the psalm that was in the lectionary for that morning. Interesting, coincidental, if there, if there are such things. So Albany says the gods defender, and they don't. But this is what the psalmist in Psalm 102 said. You know, so many of the psalms are written from the point of view of the victim, looking, looking at, the, at the horde closing in on it. And the psalmist says, O oh Lord, hear my prayer, let my cry come to you. Hide not your face from me in the day of my distress. Let this be written for the generations to come and let his future creatures praise the Lord. Quote, the Lord, so Let this be written so that future generations uh, will understand. Quote, The Lord looked down from his holy height. From heaven he beheld the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoners and to release those doomed to die. There you have it. There you have it. And we're so used to that that we don't realize that that is quite an amazing thing. That's, that's a 3,000-year-old that's uh, text that's seeing this whole thing from the point of view of the victim and seeing God as taking the side of the victim. But now Lear comes walking on stage holding Cordelia in his arms. Howl, howl, howl. Oh, you are men of stone. Had I your tongues and eyes, I'd use them so that heaven's vault should crack. I think Shakespeare is having King Lear, who is trapped, if you will, in a pagan cosmos, speaking across the chasm of time to a Christian audience out in the theater. And he is saying, Oh, you are men of stone. Had I your tongue and I, I'd use them so that heaven's vault should crack. And if heaven's vault should crack, we would have the kingdom come. And Lear goes on, she's gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives, she's dead as earth. Lend me a looking glass. If that her breath will mist or stain the stone, why then she lives? So we're just told that she's dead and gone, and then he says, give me a mirror. Now why does Shakespeare want a mirror right here? He wants to find out if she's alive or not. And give me a mirror. And then he calls the mirror a stone, a polished stone. If her breath will mist or stain the stone, why then she lives. When's the last time we saw the word stone? Just above he said you are men of stone. Is she alive or not? Well, if we can if the stones will mist, she's alive. And if they won't, she isn't. And Kent says, is this the promised end, and Edgar, or image of that horror? It's a reference to the uh, the apocalyptic moment. And Albany says, fall and cease. And he is speaking to the pagan pantheon, to the gods in the pagan pantheon. Fall and cease. The vault is cracking. And the sky is falling. And the sky that is falling is the sky that had been overhanging the pagan cosmos, I think. Is she alive or dead? You see, we're doing this uh, a week and a day away from, from Easter, which is the when the Christian community asks themselves the same question about... Is he alive or dead? And if alive, then the vault is cracking. So Albany says, fall and cease. I think that's very important in this context. Now Lear has changed. Now it's a feather. This feather stirs. She lives. If it be so, it is a chance which does redeem all sorrows that ever I have felt. Now the feather is less substantial. It's an angelic kind of an image. We think of wings. So now it's something less substantial, and we're, 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 we're approaching this question of life and death with more and more subtle uh, measurements. Now it's the feather. And he says, the feather stirs. And Lear waves everybody off away from him and he says, Cordelia, Cordelia, stay a little. Huh? What is it thou sayest? Her voice was ever soft, gentle, and low. So we've come from stone to feather to voice. A very soft, Hardly audible voice. And what do we have to go on? Nothing except what Lear is telling us. Now, you have to remember, this is, this is theater. This is Elizabethan theater. This isn't modern cinematography. There are no close-ups. There's no microphone right up there, you see. There's no camera right up there. The people are back here in the audience saying, look, see, ho, all this, we don't know. We're just hearing what he's telling us. We're exactly in the position that we are with regard to the to the Jesus event. We have these strange, these strange utterances that have come down to us, and and in very much the same uh, questioning. You see, what do we know? Her voice, he says, was as ever soft, gentle, and low. Now he has gone from the visual to the auditory more subtle more subtle question will be can the visual be re- restored but for right now he's gone to the auditory and at the same time he begins to if, if we think of him as being at some depth of experience right now he surfaces in, in in stages he says her voice was ever soft gentle and low and then he says something that's jars a little bit with the depth of that. He says, an excellent thing in a woman. That's an abstract thought. And then he says, I killed the slave that was a hanging thee. Now, if we were to come up from depths such as he's been in to that line, as quickly as he did, we would get the bends. That is unbelievable. He has one stop in the middle, which is it's 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 nice when women have nice soft voices, and then he says, "I killed the slave that was a hang. And the captain says, "Tis true, my lords, he did." Well, we have to keep that in mind. And Lear says, "Did I not, fellow?" And suddenly he's in this—he's at the surface's level again. He's at the level of the plots. He says, "Did I not, fellow?" I have seen the day with my good biting falchion, I would have made them skip. And he sounds for all the world there for a second like some old weary soldier that keeps telling the old tale. Right? He surfaces to that level after this incredible place where he's been. He's going to return very, uh, very soon. But I think we have to recognize this surface. But now he begins to return. I am old now. He's just bragged about how he used to wield a pretty mean sword, and now he says, "I am old now, and these same crosses spoil me." And I think that we have to see a Christian implication to the word cross, and they do spoil him for the old melodrama. The old uh, wielding of those swords. The cross spoils it. The cross reveals it, complicates it, undermines it. Live by the sword, you die by the sword. All of that. And this is Lear leaving the pagan cosmos for a Christian cosmos he's never heard the first thing about. You see, that's I think what we what can we we can see here. He turns to Kent, who are you? Mine eyes are not of the best. I'll tell you straight. So we still have a problem with eyes. And Kent says, if fortune brag of two she loved and hated, one of them we behold. And we want to know, well, who's the other one? And I don't think we would know, except when Helen Gardner called this scene of, Cordelia, of Lear walking on stage holding Cordelia in his arms as the secular Pieta, there's a hint of what the other one might be. And Lear says, this is a dull sight. So again, his eyes, he still can't see. And Kent says, your eldest daughters have foredone themselves and desperately are dead. And amazingly, Lear says, "Aye, ah, so I think." My God, how does the parent respond to the news that his two daughters have just killed themselves? "Aye, ah, so I think." I'll come back to that in a second. Albany and Edgar, the sensible good guys in this play, the guys who know they they know the world in the in the middle range of its of its reality, and they function there on a on a moral in a moral way. Albany and Edgar, good guy, solid guy. Albany says, "He knows not what he says, and vain it is that we present us to him." And Edgar says, "Very, very bootless." And it, from their perspective, it's, it's true. He's talking about something they have absolutely. Uh, no commerce with and 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 it seems like craziness and this is one of the one of the geniuses of using the pagan settings because they have no sense of what he might be saying indicating such a distance and the captain comes in and says edmund is dead my lord and that completes it so now we have the three villains the two sisters the two evil sisters and the one evil son, all dead. Now, when the villains die in a, in a melodrama, in a plot, when the villains die, that's very important stuff. Like, that's the, that's the thing. I mean, most of the intense melodramas, the intense plots, are are aiming at the elimination of the villains. When Lear is told that his two sisters are dead, he says, Aye, so I think. And when Albany hears that Edmund is dead, he says, That's but a trifle here. He knows enough to know that what's going on here is far more profound than just the death of the bad guy. And Albany resigns the leadership of the country to the old king. For us, we will resign during the life of this old majesty, to him our absolute power. All friends shall taste the wages of their virtue, and all foes the cup of their deserving. And he believes it, of course. And, it, and, and it's good that, that we believe that. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's the principle of justice. And it takes Albany. Albany's absolute confidence in that principle uh, qualifies him to be a practical political leader. But something else is going on on the far side of that, uh, of, of that world view. And it's recognized right there. As soon as he says that, he says, Oh, see, see. And Lear says, And my poor fool is hanged. Nobody knows. He's talking about his fool. He's talking about Cordelia. Have, have they come together? Are they the same person now? No, Lear says, No, no, no life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life? And thou, no breath at all. Thou'lt come no more, never, 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 never. And the symmetry of the play comes into place here because at the very beginning of the play we had that scene where five times the word nothing was spoken. Cordelia says nothing, my lord Lear. Nothing, Cordelia. Nothing, Lear. Nothing will come of nothing. And now we get the, the five repetitions of never. So this is the nadir. This is the bottom for Lear. She'll come no more, never, 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 never. Now when he was in the hovel, he had wanted to strip off and become completely naked as this unaccommodated Tom of Bedlam was. And he says, uh, Undo this button. And now he is at the end. The final, this is apocalyptic in the sense the word apocalyptic means unveiling, the stripping away. After the never, 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 he says, Pray you, undo this button. In other words, he's just asking somebody to come over and help him. Uh, undo that top button so he can get a breath of air. Undo this button. Thank you, sir. Now, I just... I, I want to say, this is a, one of the many things I didn't see the last reading. I There's always a lot of things I didn't see the last reading. Pray you undo this button. One last thing has to fall. And then, he has... In response to a simple act of human kindness, somebody unbuttons his shirt, he offers a simple act of human gratitude. Thank you, sir. And the more I went over this, the more I saw the the absolute essential uh, significance of that phrase, thank you, sir. It tells us volumes about the transformation in this man. In the midst of this deep moment of despair, he can look back to someone who has just offered him this simple kindness and say thank you. And everything opens up. To what we are not privy. He says, do you see this? Look, now it's all visual. Suddenly the eyes have opened. Do you see this? Look on her, her lips. Look there, look there. And he dies. And the death of Gloucester was Shakespeare's way of offering us the interpretive tool for the death of Lear. Gloucester died, his flawed heart to lack, too weak to conflict to support, twixt two extremes of passion, joy and grief, burst smiling. What is it? We're, we, he says, look there. Look there. And we can't look there because we're out in the balcony somewhere in, in the theater and all we have is this voice coming out of us. And it requires of us to dissolve the observed and observable world. It is not available in the world of the observer and the observed. It's not available there. It's like the empty tomb. It's very much like the empty tomb. What's it tell you? What do you make of it? And he dies. And Kent says, Break heart, I prithee, break. And Shakespeare has in his plays before, and will again, put the world back together. The dramatist has that responsibility. Plays are, Aristotle says, supposed to be, tragic plays are supposed to be cathartic. But at the end, because of that, the dramatist is obliged to package the world back up in a recognizable form, give it back to his audience, and allow them to leave the theater into a world that is, is uh, ordered. And when Shakespeare, when he's in a mood to do it, he can do it nicely. He's in no mood to do it. Yet. He makes a gesture in its direction that, that reveals to us how insignificant that task is under the present circumstances in his eye, I think. Albany says, "...bear them from hence." Our present business is general woe. This is so much, the tragedies so often have this exact thing. And then he says, he turns to Kent and Edgar, and he says, friends of my soul, you twain rule in this realm, and the gourd state sustain. Look what he's doing. This play began with two people trying to run this society and immediately gave rise to the whole memetic crisis. And he's about to start it off in that same direction. Kent, however, is going off to commit suicide. And so he leaves it uh, to Edgar. Kent says, I have a journey, short, sir, shortly to go. My master calls me. I must not say no. And the last lines are left to Albany in some of the text to Edgar. It's variously attributed. It doesn't matter. And the last lines are these. The weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel and not what we ought to say. Now, what we ought to say is put the world back together again, three cheers for our team, and everything's okay, don't worry, and leave the theater. But we shall speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest hath borne most, we that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. In other words, we missed it. He dismisses the audience from the theater by telling them that they missed the point of the play. Well, that's why we have to come back, you see. Nothing, almost, Sees miracle, but misery. And Shakespeare, I think, was in no mood to return the pl- the, the audience to the, the world, because in writing this play, he had uh, uncovered the the kind of mess that those conventions usually camouflage, and had lost sympathy for them almost completely. The Shakespearean critic, Arthur Sewell, says, Lear, in his madness, has a terrible picture of what may lie beneath the facade of social and political institutions. And for a moment, we have a vision of all society itself in its forms and customs, rotten and hypocritical. It is a picture of society in which institutions are all false-seeming. And justice itself so perverted that it lends itself as a disguise to those very ills on which it passes judgment. We have raised the stone and seen the maggots. Pretty strong stuff. That's one sentence. It's quite a sentence. Justice itself is so perverted that it lends itself as a disguise to those very ills on which it passes judgment. That's an amazing sentence. Let me quote. uh, When Lear says, do you see this? We could almost underscore that you, the way we do in the passage from Jesus when he says, whom do you say that I am? Do you see this? And it made me think of this passage in John Sullivan. Sullivan writes, we must abandon the scientific idea of objective fact. There is an empty tomb and some stories about apparition. There is no decisive fact. This fragility is linked to the central mystery of Jesus. The accusation of subjectivism has often been used to justify intellectual imperialism while simultaneously concealing spiritual emptiness. The object of faith is not a means of knowing any more than the mystery of Christ is an object of historical knowledge. We can't reach it across 20 centuries of history, but faith simultaneously makes it contemporary. Hence, it represents neither object nor an effort to understand but the transformation of the subject. And Lear said, do you see? I saved for last what are some of the most beautiful lines in, in the English language. Perhaps one of the reasons Shakespeare could not, did not have it in him to return the audience to the conventional world is because in these lines I'm about to quote, he discovered the gravitational field of another world to be so much more powerful than the conventional one, that he couldn't abandon it uh, for practical social reasons. Cordelia and Lear together, and Cordelia says to Lear, We are not the first who, with best meaning, have incurred the worst. For thee, oppressed king, I am cast down, myself could else outfrown false fortune's frown. Shall we not see these daughters and these sisters? Now, there was a moment, of course, many of them in Lear's uh, travail when he would have loved to have seen these daughters and these sisters to give them a piece of his mind. The idea of seeing them would have been tantalizing. Yes, yes, by golly, let's see them, let's confront them. And now Cordelia says, Shall we? And Lear says, No. No, no, no. Come, what's a way to prison? We two alone will sing like birds in a cave. To me, this is Shakespeare's beatific vision. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales, and laugh at gilded butterflies. Now we could hear, you know, the verbs tell the whole story. Live, pray, sing, tell tales, laugh. And hear poor rogues talk of court news. And we'll talk with them too. Who loses and who wins, who's in, who's out. It doesn't matter. We can we don't have to give up our subscription to Time magazine. It's all just it's it's part of the human funny business. Everybody else will be taking it so deadly seriously. But we're on the other side of it. And we don't have to be cranks we can be forgiving. So we'll talk with them too. Who loses? Who wins? Who's in? Who's out? And take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spy. And here, of course, it's capital G, God. And before it's been a small g, speaking of the pagan deity. We shall be God's spy. And we'll wear out in a walled prison packs and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. To wear out. What a fabulous verb at this point. I said earlier that, that some of these things don't occur to you until you get to the 15th reading. Well, that's Shakespeare's way of wearing us out, wearing us down. And Lear says, we'll wear them out. What do you do? How, you see, what, in, in light of this vision of life, how do you respond to that craziness of the, uh, of the sociodrome? You just wear it out. That's, I mean, that's what this text is saying. We'll wear it out. We'll wear out in a walled prison. And notice what he'll, he'll wear out. Packs and sex of great ones. Now, these are the things that Shakespeare despised most. Packs are the mob, and sex are the political partisans, and the great ones are the people who presume to be the leaders of either mobs or political partisans, but are only leaders by virtue of the fact that they have nosed their way out in front of a pack and tell it what it wants to hear. So often, the way Shakespeare describes this, what passes for, for leadership. So the great ones have simply gotten the Gallup poll. And they know that men are as the time is. And they've gotten themselves out in front of one of these packs or mobs. But there's no bitterness here. He says, we'll just wear them out. Because they all ebb, all of that enterprise ebbs and flows by the moon. They come and they go. Fortunes rise and fall. Well, I saved that for last because because it's the it's the vision that Shakespeare creates of what it would be like to be in the world and not of it. What uh, Auden calls uh, heavenly whirling This concludes Reflections on Shakespeare's King Lear If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org That's cornerstoneforum all one word dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.